Awesome. Oh, good morning. Oh. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this morning. Like Tony said, my name is Aaron. Uh, if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 3. We're going to take just today to kind of do a kind of a one-off message to begin the new year. Next week, we're going to start or resume really our series through the Old Testament. We'll be back in the book of 1 Samuel. So that'll start next week. Uh, but for this, this morning, I wanted to look at Philippians chapter 3 this morning as we begin uh, the new year together. And, you know, as we kind of look at the new year, often, especially during uh, seasons like this, as we begin the new year, there's often the time of, you know, trying to start new things, new habits and goals and ideas, and that's great and that's awesome. We try to have, you know, like our priorities realigned. And just as a brief aside, it's interesting, this word priorities in the plural, uh, Greg McCowan in his book Essentialism notes that the word priority came into the English language in about the 1400s, and it came into the English language singular, priority, not, not plural, priorities. That's just what we've done in the past kind of 50 or 60 years or so. We've kind of pluralized the word because that's what you know, Americans want to do, right? Have multiple things going on at the same time and just be as busy as we possibly can. But as we look at Philippians 3, one of the things I want to look at is Paul's priority, singular, his main goal, his passion, what drives him. And my hope and prayer is that as we kind of reorient ourselves for this new year, that what Paul's passion, Paul's priority is, becomes in turn our priority. Now, to begin, I want to start with kind of a story that kind of sets the stage for this chapter. And I kind of borrowed this from a scholar, Ben Witherington. He does a lot of academic work, but he also writes kind of historical fiction in the kind of biblical world and kind of the ancient sort of first century context and kind of adapting some of his language but I want to invite you into just kind of imagining what it would have been like to live in the first century to be a part of, say, this church here in Philippi. Just imagine, you are a first century Philippian. You live right on the tip of Greece, a few miles inland from the Aegean Sea in a hot Mediterranean valley. Philippi, where you live, is buzzing with life. Tens of thousands of Romans are moving into the city from all across the empire. In fact, Philippi reminds you a lot of Rome, from the layout of the streets, the architecture, the statues on almost every single corner have a Latin inscription. It's like Rome away from Rome. But you haven't been there too long. You were a soldier in Caesar's army, a patriot to the core, right? The ground of Macedonia is dyed red with your blood, and you're not sorry. No, you're proud. You have Caesar to thank. Caesar has blessed you with a plot of land right in the heart of the city. Tax exempt. You have Caesar to thank for everything. That's why you go down to the temple and worship and offer sacrifices. Why? Because Caesar is Lord. Well, that's at least what you used to think. Until this kind of no-name rabbi Paul from Jerusalem showed up into town one day. And this rabbi, Paul from Jerusalem, he was preaching this kind of different euangelion, this different gospel, this different message, that there was this other Lord, Jesus from Nazareth. And this message was, was dangerous because you're used to the gospel, the, the message that Caesar is Lord. And Paul was proclaiming that this man from Nazareth was the one true Lord. And at the same time, this man Naz from Nazareth was also crucified by your Roman army buddies outside of that podunk town of Jerusalem. And you begin to feel this tension building in you. Where is your allegiance? Where is your priority going to be? 
Because the message that this Paul was proclaiming was a dangerous message. Because if this message is true, that means Caesar is not the one true Lord. Caesar is the parody for which Jesus is the reality. Now, for obvious reasons, Paul was run out of town. We think he's in prison, perhaps maybe in Rome. But Paul left behind this ecclesia, this gathering, this church, made up of men and women, masters and slaves, rich and poor, Jews and Gentiles, something that was never heard of of that time. And you began to feel yourself drawn to this community, drawn to this story, drawn to this Jesus. And one day you decide to show up at church on a Sunday night at Lydia's house and you see the people gathering together. They're partaking of the bread and the wine. They're singing songs to this Jesus, retelling some of the stories that he did back in Galilee. And as you're gathering there together, lo and behold, who comes to the door? Epaphrodites, one of Paul's primary co-workers, comes in. And he has this announcement to make, that he has a letter from Paul. He's written it from prison in Rome, and he has this letter, and he wants to read the entire thing in one sitting. Don't worry, I won't do that today. And if Epaphrodites gets up, and he begins to read the letter, and he gets to the line where Paul writes, I count everything as loss in order that I may gain Christ. And chills go down your spine. Because you know in that moment a decision needs to be made. Paul goes on and he gets to the line but he, where Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And right there for sure, you now know. Something's up. A choice has to be made. Where will your priority lie? Where will your allegiance lie? Now, with all that in the back of our heads, let's dive into the text line by line, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's like saying, if you want to compare LinkedIn profiles, I have the better one, right? I have the better resume. He goes on, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was the tribe that produced the first king of Israel, King Saul. We'll get to that in a couple months. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Now, we often think sometimes the Pharisees, they're like the bad guys in the Gospels, and, you know, for, for a lot of good reasons. But in that time, the Pharisees were well-respected. They were the ones that honored God, that sought faithfully to devote themselves to the Scripture. Paul is saying, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, verse 6, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lists all of his accomplishments. He tells his story. He tells what was happening in his past. And he then says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now when Paul says that line, whatever gain I had, that word gain, it's and, and counted. These are like accounting terms and metaphors in Paul's language. Paul is saying, I've, I've done the mental work. I've done the, the deep work of thinking deeply about this. All of these things that I just mentioned in the first few verses, Paul is saying, I've lined them up in the column over here, 
And on this side over here, I've done the accounting work, is Jesus, and the scales are completely weighted over here. Jesus is my priority. Everything else over here, Paul says, I count, verse 7, as loss. Why? To gain Christ. To gain Jesus. See, that question then becomes, think about this. If you're listening to this letter being read out loud in that house church 2,000 years ago, that question begins to naturally rise up. Is this true of me? Where are my allegiances? Where is my priority? Do you see the singular focus that Paul has here? Everything else I consider loss in order that I may gain this one thing, this one person, Jesus himself. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now just pause right here. This is just purely for fun. That word rubbish is the word scubalon. That's just fun to say, right? Can we all just say scubalon together in church? Scubalon. And it's a word that's actually, in the original language, it's, very, it's like a profane kind of word. It's actually not a very nice word. We have to, like, tame it down in our English translations. Right? And so Paul is saying everything else is rubbish or dung. It's like excrement, Paul is saying. It's very visceral language. Scubalon. Why? In order, again, Paul says that I may gain Christ. Any achievement, any family background, any religious affiliation, any reputation, whatever it might be, Paul says, in compared to Christ, if Jesus is not at the center of that, it is scubalon. It's, 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 it's not, it's rubbish. Why? Again, verse 8. Now listen to how Paul writes this. It's beautiful. In order that I may gain Christ... And be found in him. See, for Paul, this is his priority. This is what is driving Paul, that I may be found in him. What does that mean? This is like exactly what Kathy was, I think, mentioning just a moment ago. Where Paul, yes, he has all of this knowledge of the scriptures. As a Pharisee, as one who studied the law, who studied the Torah, who knew the scriptures, Paul is saying that's not even enough just to know a bunch of Bible verses. That's not enough to just have the prophets and the writings just baking in his mind. No, what Paul wants is to be found in him, to experience at a deep, visceral level the love of Christ in his own personal life. To be, as the language of John's gospel puts it, to abide in him. To have intimacy with his creator. To be found in him. Not having, look at this, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. In Paul's day, righteousness, who was declared to be in the right, who was declared to be God's people, was often dictated by external boundary markers, keeping of the law, Sabbath, dietary restrictions. Paul is saying, my standing before God, my inclusion in the family of God is not based merely on externals, but is based, Paul says, on the righteousness that depends on faith or the faithfulness of Jesus. It's Jesus' faithfulness to us and for us that solidifies and includes us and brings us into the family of God. So that Paul, like he just said a moment ago, may be found in him. That's only possible because, Paul says, of the faithfulness of Jesus. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may, I love this, know him. 
Now think about this for a moment. Paul, at this point in his ministry, has been following Jesus at least for a decade or two, maybe even more. And Paul says that I want to know him. What do you mean, Paul? You do know him. I mean, you encountered him on the road to Damascus. He knocked you off your horse. Like, you know Jesus. You've written books of the Bible. You know him. Paul says, no, I want to know him even more. There's this hunger. There's this passion. There's this drive. I want to know him, not just in, especially in the Jewish mindset. Knowledge is not just about, again, memorizing Bible verses, though that is important, though that is important to know the scriptures on like a, you know, intellectual level. Knowledge, knowing in the Jewish mind is an experiential, relational knowledge. How two people, when they are so close in relationship, they know each other. That they are in sync with each other. That you begin to, maybe in like our human relationships, finish each other's sentences, know how they flow, know how they feel. It's that deep, intimate, relational knowledge that Paul is speaking of. And that for Paul, you get this sense as you read a passage like this, that he is not satisfied in the best sense. That he knows there's more to be experienced. That he knows there's more to be gained by being found in him. That I may know him. And the power of his resurrection. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is saying, I want to know him in the way where I experience both his power and his sufferings. The positive and the negative. That I want to know him in both the mountains and the valleys. And that this is on offer for followers of Jesus. And I imagine you're sitting there in that house church. And to hear the single-minded focus of a man like Paul as he writes this. That this is Paul's priority. That by any means of 11, that I may retain the resurrection for the dead. And look at this, holy dissatisfaction in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this. If there's anyone that could say, I've arrived, I've achieved, I've, I've, I've attained you know, maturity in Christ, it would be Paul. But Paul says, not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect. But what does he say? I press on. I press on to make it my own, because why Christ Jesus had made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing this language of one thing, I love it. It's one of those kind of fun things to find all the times where the, the Bible uses this phrase, one thing, to get that, that singular focus in view. Psalm 27, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and gaze upon his beauty, to meditate upon his beauty. Paul, I think, is riffing off of that singular focus of Psalm 27. One thing, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, when Paul says forgetting what lies behind, he's not like just dismissing his past or dismissing his story. No, he just told us his past earlier in chapter 3. No, part of maturity, part of growing is to know our story, to know where God has taken us, to integrate that into our being and to press forward. But at the same time, not allowing those things in the past to have sway and hold on us now. Paul says forgetting what lies behind, straining forward towards what lies ahead. Again, press on, that same language, toward the upward, or sorry, toward the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Again, the, 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 the words are slightly different, but notice this major theme, this language of priority. 
this language of singular devotion for, the, for Paul. What's interesting, twice I mentioned in this little paragraph we just read, that word press on is the same word Paul used for persecute just a moment ago earlier in the chapter. Paul is saying before he met Jesus, he was pressing on, in a sense, persecuting the church. But now that Jesus has intervened in his life, that same passion, that same zeal, is now being redirected for the things of God. And this is what what happens when God invades someone's life, captures someone's heart. That energy, that passion, those giftings, those callings that were used in animosity towards Christ are now being directed for the kingdom. It's a story of God taking Paul's past and redirecting it towards hope and beauty and transformation. What a picture of God's grace. What Satan meant for evil, God has turned and redeemed for good in Paul's life. Verse 15, Paul goes on, let those of us who are mature... Think this way. If any of you think otherwise, God will reveal this also to you. Paul's saying be humble, right? Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me. It's often helpful as we live our lives in discipleship to Jesus to have other people that we can imitate, to follow, to pattern ourselves after. Healthy models that show us what it looks like to prioritize Jesus in our lives. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you are now, I tell you even in with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. Paul here is lamenting over the fact that there's people in his life that apparently he's had a close relationship with, that he has ministered to, that he has given himself to, that have not taken up this, this focus, this priority. That have allowed the, their, their gods or their bellies, it's a kind of a way, a metaphorical way of describing that their gods are just whatever they desire. Whatever feels good on the inside, that's what's just going to drive them. That's what's motivating them. But Paul says that, that way of living, that way of interacting in the world is only going to lead to destruction. But Paul turns a corner in verse 20, and we're going to camp out here for a moment. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Again, imagine being that Roman in Philippi. You hear that line, you're a Roman citizen. Your allegiance, your priority is to Caesar. And as you are seeking and wondering and questioning, what does it mean to follow this Jesus? Paul drops this bomb in the middle of his letter and says, but no, no, no. Our citizenship is not here in Rome. My priority is not to Rome. It's to the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, let me pause right here. This line probably is one of, I think, one of the most, I think, misapplied lines throughout all the New Testament. I think oftentimes it's used in the exact opposite way that Paul intends it to be used. Now, what does Paul mean when he says our citizenship is in heaven? Now, in order to, I think, kind of begin to understand what Paul is saying when he says our citizenship is in heaven, I think it's really helpful to understand what does citizenship even mean to a first century writer or reader in that house church in Philippi. So just quick kind of nerd moment, three minutes, backstory, and then I promise we'll come back to exciting things for your life today. Sound good? All right. Okay, most of you know that Rome was a massive empire. What was, what's interesting is that Rome wasn't the first massive empire to kind of take over the world. You know, Babylon, Assyria, 
the Persians, and then most recently, Alexander the Great. All were major world empires. But what was you know, unique to Rome was that Rome was essentially the largest and the first real empire to take over most of the known world at the time. It was the biggest and baddest yet. And the genius behind the Roman Empire as to how they were able to expand so fast and to maintain their expansion with with such durability was through what was called these networks of colonies or colony-like cities, like Philippi. And the genius behind a colony like Philippi was that it was made up of Roman citizens and was considered Roman land. Meaning this, you were tax-exempt for the most part. If you're a Roman citizen with land in Philippi, you were tax-exempt. So it, it, it kind of motivated people to live out, outside of Rome, into these other regions to help expand the empire. And so you have in Philippi, predominantly, a ton of Roman citizens who are loyal to a T to Rome. Now, as a citizen of Rome in Philippi, it was considered your honor Not to someday just escape and go back to Rome, but it was your honor to bring the culture of Rome to a place like Philippi. To share and to demonstrate and to show the architecture, the culture, the food, the customs, the way of life. What it meant to be a Roman in a foreign place like Philippi. You know, someone's hope as a Roman citizen in Philippi was not, oh, I can't wait for the day where I'm going to go to my true home someplace else back in Rome. No, your honor as a Roman citizen, was to represent Rome well in Philippi. So when Paul says in 320, your citizenship is in heaven, Paul is not saying, oh, just, just check out. You know, we're just passing through, and someday we're going to go someplace else. But just hang on tight for now. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, don't just hunker down, create a Christian subculture, you know, go to church eight days a week, get a Christian mechanic and a Christian bumper sticker and a Christian dentist. No, no. Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying, as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, represent the king well. Represent the culture, the values, what it means to love your enemy, what it means to serve the poor and the marginalized. What it means to hold the values of the kingdom internally and to represent those externally in our culture now. And Paul says this, our citizenship is in heaven. That if your deepest desire is Jesus, if everything else apart from Christ is scubalon, is kind of dung, rubbish, then you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And your priority, your goal, your passion is to be to represent the king well in this world. This is an honor. This is a privilege. So live right in the here and now. Don't escape, but bring the culture of the king, of the kingdom of God to bear upon Philippi. Show what it looks like to love your enemy. Show what it looks like to care for widows and orphans and children in need. Show what it looks like to fight injustice. Show what it looks like to bring reconciliation to the places in our society that desperately need it. Paul says, don't check out, but engage. He goes on, 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, what's what's the it? 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, right? From heaven, we await a Savior. Notice the direction. Jesus is coming to us, Paul says. That hope, that, 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 that longing is for Jesus to come back here, not necessarily for us to escape someplace else. From heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. I love this language where Paul says in the NIV, we eagerly wait. And then he also says into 21 that we're longing for the day where Jesus brings everything under his control. I don't know about you, but this past season has felt the exact opposite. Almost everything out of control. And sometimes as we enter into the new year, a new season like this, we have these longings and these hopes. God, is this going to continue forever? When will, the, when will there be some semblance of normal? When will the chaos and the uncertainty end? We are longing for Jesus to bring everything under his feet, everything under his control in order as it was meant to be. Longing for the day, as Peter would say in Acts chapter 3, the restoration of all things. Or John would say, riffing off of Isaiah, a new heavens and new earth where there's no more pain, suffering, death, and every tear is wiped away. We are longing for the reconciliation and redemption and the renewal of all things. And as we begin this new year, may it be a reminder of the God who is making all things new. That longing for something new and something better and something different is a God-given desire that he has given you, pointing you to the kingdom of God that is here and is still coming. And that we wait, as Paul says, eagerly await with hope, naming the pain, being honest about the pain, being honest about the uncertainty, bringing that before God and trusted others so that we might experience the healing both now and into the future that God is wanting to bring. Paul is saying, as we kind of take a step back from Philippians 3, that this follower of Jesus is, the, is your priority. This is God's priority for you. That we would be kingdom citizens with hope and anticipation in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of craziness. That we would be kingdom citizens that look at kind of our lives and in comparison to everything else, consider Christ be worthy, worthy of everything to gain him. It's a shift that, that Jesus is inviting us into. And then if you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're maybe like that person that I was mentioning in the beginning with that story, the invitation is to turn. Turn and give your story to Jesus and be a part of his story. His story of redemption and renewal. To prioritize him above else. Yes, it's a process. No one is perfect at it. We are all together collectively still journeying on this journey together. But the invitation, though, is still the same for every single one of us. 
are we living our lives as a citizen of heaven, prioritizing him above all else? Now, as we kind of land the plane, let's kind of think about what does this text practically look like for us in our kind of everyday life as we begin this new year? You know, again, like I mentioned at the beginning, sometimes the new year, and this is not, this is not to be, you know, hard or like, you know, anti any of this about as what I'm about to say. But oftentimes in the beginning of the new year, we like to have like these reevaluating moments of what's our priority going to be? What's our resolution going to be? What's the new habits that we're going to do? And it's this moment, and naturally so, and I think, again, it's, this is good and it can be healthy, of what will my priority be this year, right? Again, not trying to, kind of, to bash on that at all. But here's sometimes what happens, at least for me, and I would venture, if we're honest, a lot of you are in this camp too. Sometimes when we get to these moments in the new year, it reminds me of those, that scene, remember in the first Star Wars, like the, the really bad one, the, the, the one with Jar Jar Binks in it? Right? Remember that, that, that Star Wars? The only cool scene in that movie is the pod race scene, right? And there's this scene where as the pod racers are all kind of revving their engines up, they're ready to kind of get off the line, and they're revving and they're charging, they're going to go and they're going to go, and there's that one poor guy who like explodes right off like within a few seconds, right? And sometimes I think that's, that's often how we approach these moments of wanting to have new habits and new priorities, especially into the new year. We're getting our engines revved up. We're going to go. We're going to charge for it. And then, like, you know, we try to read the Bible in a year, and you get to Leviticus, and, you know, it kind of all falls apart, right? <laughs> You've been there before. That's why you laugh, right? But what if, what if, what it means to consider everything as lost for this passing worth of knowing Christ, and what if what it means to be a citizen of the king is not about us revving our little pod race engines to really gear up and kind of muster it all up on our own, but what if it's about the small, faithful, even unglamorous changes, habits, to reorient us slowly but surely over a long course, a long course of faithfulness? What if that's the mindset that we're to have? You know, it's easy to read a text like this where Paul, you can hear it in his language, the, the tone, the passion. I press on. I, gain, I count everything as lost. You can hear his excitement as he's writing this. And it's easy to then take that and just think, okay, I just have to have that passion, muster myself up and to be that little pod racer, 